Hi, everybody. This is Pete Worrell speaking from Bigelow, introducing another episode of the Positive Enterprise Value Podcast. In this podcast, we have the fun of interviewing and listening to some of the most seasoned, successful entrepreneur owner managers on the planet. They journey through their lives and through their enterprises, through their communities, through their families. And in their success, they leave breadcrumbs for us to see and to examine, which we do on this podcast. This week, I have the fun of interviewing my friends, Barbara and Ed Wilson, the founders of Wilson Language Training. Wilson Language Training is the most widely known firm to provide curriculum or pedagogy in teaching students, dyslexic students, how to read. And perhaps even more importantly, how to teach teachers how to teach dyslexic students how to read. You'll hear from Barbara and Ed how they began their business basically as a coaching or tutoring operation, teaching a few dozen kids at a time, and realized the massive scale of demand of the literally millions of students who needed their help to learn how to read across the country and around the world. They generously and candidly share with us uh, stories from their 38 years of marriage, their 35 years of running this business, including trying to attract and retain great talent, including some of the foibles of trying to work with school systems across the country, including their very clever, almost intuitive sense of setting the company up to really scale, and a little bit of talk about a recent event where Bigelow helped them to architect a recapitalization with uh, Alpine Equity Partners, which specializes, among other things, in education businesses. I hope you enjoy this uh, session with Ed and Barbara as much as I do. I think you'll hear their authentic kindness come out uh, in the um, podcast, as well as their perspicacity, their attention to detail, their mastery of their domain. Without further delay, let's hear Barbara and Ed. So thank you for doing this. Really, really appreciate it. And I know the people who listen to Positive Enterprise Value are going to appreciate it because, you know, like we said in the Piccolo Forum, um, entrepreneurial success leaves clues, yet entrepreneurs are mostly, you know, somewhat um, isolated, sometimes a little bit lonely, and so it's hard to find those clues. So if they can find a place like a podcast interview and they can speak to two entrepreneurs like you, they're like, whoa, those, those are good ideas. So... Um, one of the questions, my questions to you, I'm very comfortable with posing the questions and letting whichever one wants to answer, or both of you answer, okay? Is that cool with you? Yeah. yeah. Unless I call you out. I'm going to say, Ed. I mean, <laughs> okay. But one of the questions I had for you is, you know, after 35-plus uh, years of being entrepreneurs, building a business in the whole scientific literacy area, seeing that, that environment change and changing, and now we've come through another uh, chapter together in the business's evolution and maybe maybe your personal evolution. What chapter is this for you? Uh, I'm not sure if it's... Hmm. Can you name the chapters of your life? Uh, I can't say that I... I think that I could... If I put a little time into it, I mean, obviously, chapter one really there's a couple of chapters before I met Barbara, and then many chapters since we've been married. You know, the, we have the learning center together. We have the uh, that was a formative time for us. You know, of course, we had an incredible romance, and and uh, you know, 
we found shared values and shared interests in doing things to help people with with dyslexia. At least I felt so inspired early on. And you might have thought the Learning Center was going to be it at one point. Did you? Probably, yes, you know, and I think that the uh, pretty quickly we saw that it, it wasn't going to be all that we could do out there and that we had to move on from that to get out to school districts, but probably that next chapter we um, imagined would just be more local, working with school districts in Massachusetts and not necessarily... Um, nationwide and so I would say there was probably the chapter of um, us together in business with the learning center and then the first chapter in the 90s and then 2000 we built Oxford and the new building and then since the 2000s it's just been escalation (laughs) and escalation and so which chapter is this I I don't think it's the final chapter but it's the next chapter and I would imagine would have one or two chapters to go but um, do you feel like like what you've just come through is a chapter change as I'm suggesting yes yeah without a doubt oh yeah no it's a unit you know we're we're, we're, we're moving into the second perhaps the second uh, volume it, it's, it's almost, it really is a bit of a different book. I mean, I can think of all the steps we went through from when we moved, closed the learning center and moved, and actually briefly shut it down, moved into our house in Millbury. That was definitely a chapter and started having employees there. And then we, the mill across the street became available, so we said, okay, let's get our house back and start shipping books out of there. And then the mill was a chapter for sure. <laughs> And we <clears throat> had the chapter of renting an additional warehouse, and then yes, building Oxford. So there's a lot of interesting pieces, but we're I, I feel like we've moved to a whole different. Um, I mean, this is this story. is probably <laughs> one of the biggest shifts all at once, um, because many other shifts, you know, happened over months and years of time, but to have a shift in in direction happen. I, I really see it's going to take some time for us to um, transition, and so meeting other people who um, made transitions and the day, the next day, life changed for them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that's not going to be the case with us. We're going to be continuing in the business for the next two years, but on a step down. Mm-hmm. So that I think that it's, you know, going to be an interesting next couple of years, and then um, probably quite different after that. So if you could use a couple of nouns to describe yourself, what would you say? Feelings? Nouns to describe myself? Nouns, yeah, nouns, let's see. Uh, We're in the language business, we should know a good noun. Uh, I mean, husband, wife, leader, I don't want to put fill in the words for you, whatever you think. Yes. Hmm. That's a good question. Teacher? I would say teacher author, wife, of course, um, sister, um, friend, um, leader. And entrepreneur? Entrepreneur, but I, I, that is a word that I don't think of myself as um, uh, until we talk. <laughs> and I say, oh, yes, that's right, I'm an entrepreneur. But I would never have chosen that word. So maybe would you say you were not an intentional entrepreneur? Without a doubt. You were an accidental entrepreneur? An accidental 
And I think same with you. I'm not so sure. I, I mean, obviously, that I always in my business life just kind of looked at opportunities that presented themselves and pursued them, you know. Right. What they matched my interest level or possible. You know, I didn't have this any kind of a career plan. And then when we started the Learning Center together, yeah, that was entrepreneurial. We built it. We, we started to step out into taking, you know, financial risk and not having income from any place else so that... You do that, you're an entrepreneur, if you ask me. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Without a doubt, right from the beginning, um, we, you know, were excited about building a business, but it wasn't ever with the intent of building a business to sell a business right. or building a business to, to um, make a lot of money. It was, you know, to meet the need. And we took risks, and we didn't think about it. We didn't look back, you know, and we didn't worry that we didn't have health insurance. We didn't worry that we... Um, right, we took small incremental risks, which yes. is interesting. Mm-hmm. There weren't a lot of big, bold... We never had debt. I mean, that's unusual. I mean, a lease, right, at least a printer. <laughs> but, you know, somehow we just took things in very careful steps. So I, I think I, we, we weren't, we're not big risk takers. Did you give some thought in the early years for having your organization be not for profit? Definitely. Without a doubt. So we had the Learning Center in the 80s, and then in 1992 um, is when we formed Wilson Language Training Corporation. And at that time, we closed the Learning Center to change the mission to doing teacher training in schools. And so we had published the Wilson Reading System at that time and started doing training outside the Learning Center. Um, But when we set up that corporation, we did think quite a bit about should we make this not-for-profit because so many different organizations in our space who were doing teacher training, and, and actually there wasn't really anybody out there exactly like us, but it seemed to make sense to have it be not-for-profit. But um, we also felt like it seemed that the not-for-profits that we saw didn't do the th- kinds of things um, that we wanted to make business decisions to really move forward, and we felt it would hold us back. Yeah. Um, and yeah, 35 years ago, I think we saw not-for-profits having difficulty at times, you know, reaching a consensus or making things happen. Um, th- that's changed over the years, you know, but back then... We, we wanted to be in control. <laughs> yeah, we definitely, we saw that boards, you know, could come and go, and you really, and, and so ownership was more about making sure we could guide this thing in the way that we felt it had to go. We had formed Educomp, which was a brief other S-Corp, too. Well, what's that about? That was the publishing. That's the first I've heard of that. <clears throat> I know, that's an old artifact of history, but Educomp Publications was how we did the first Wilson Reading System, and it was a little bit more of my focus in, in the business, and maybe at that time thinking, oh, if, you know, the publishing thing really takes off, maybe that goes to be a for-profit, whereas the Learning Center probably could have gone into the, you know, a not-for-profit type of schema if mm-hmm. we had gone that way. But when we decided to, I was flying over New Jersey, as you tell the story all the time, <laughs> and seeing all the lights down there, the need to take teacher training on and become a professional learning-focused uh, organization, then we just combined it into Wilson Language Training. Yeah. So it's interesting because our world sometimes makes a big distinction between for-profit and not-for-profit, and yet as a veteran of both, and I think your business is a uh, superb example of this, it almost doesn't matter 
whether your tax status is for profit or not for profit, you have to have purpose and mission and vision and energy and implementation and in the not-for-profit world what they call surplus in the for-profit world what you call profit you got to have all that stuff in order to achieve your mission right mm -hmm. and so sometimes i think there's an artificial distinction and i think your 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 business is just a great example of there might even now be people who think it's not for profit just mm -hmm. because of the work you do mm -hmm. well it, we've always had it be mission driven yes. and every decision has been really based upon the mission so we've always thought we're, we're probably the most um, mission driven type of company but now I think that's more becoming the norm which is it, different um, people in our space um, that we work with collaboratively um, in different um, aspects of literacy um, have looked at us because we're for profit a little bit differently and we have not had the opportunity to participate in some things because they say we can't have them join in because it, they're for profit. Hmm. Um, but that has really changed over the last maybe five years so that um, I think that people do look at us in the education world as the same as a not-for-profit mm -hmm. um, in working on different literacy causes. Um, just two examples, there's an organization called the Alliance, which is looking at teacher training for individuals with dyslexia, and we're the only for-profit part of the Alliance. And there was a big discussion, should we let Wilson be part of this? And everybody felt like, you know what? They, they do the same work we do, you know, they, it's just that they're paying taxes. Right. <laughs> and that's right. the difference. So um, there's another um, forum coming up with people and everybody else that are getting invitations from not-for-profit organizations. It's going to probably be about 40 people. I'm the only one that's from a for-profit, mm -hmm. but they said you need to be at the table. So it's an interesting thing because in, in our world of education, there's probably more um, not-for-profits um, yeah. doing the kind of work we're doing. Yeah. I um, So I think people who are listening to this podcast, you know, they're probably scratching their heads about this because in, in, in the world, um, we have not-for-profits, we have for-profits, and then we have the cooperatives, mm -hmm. right? And any of those can work. I, yes. I was recently, I'm a veteran of a lot of not-for-profit governance, and I was recently with a very well-known not-for-profit, and they were looking at their year-end, and I was just chatting with them about how did it go, and they were kind of breaking even. They've kind of broken even for a long time, and I was making the point that, you know, boy, if you don't have that surplus cash flow that you need, you actually are endangering your mission. Exactly. So what they were thinking, well, if we, all we do is break even, and that's part of our mission. We're not for profit. I said, yeah, but yeah. how are you going to get the cash flow you need to grow to do the things you want to do, right? So it's this interesting yes. conundrum. That uh, some and the B Corporation is um, the Public Benefit Corporation. Yes. You know, that, I think, is really making the um, bridge. Yeah, good yes. point. Mm -hmm. Good point. So, so you might call yourselves somewhat accidental entrepreneurs, so then this isn't what you thought you were going to be doing when you were a kid. I knew I'd be teaching. So what did you think you were going to be doing? I, you thought you would be a teacher? I, well, I, right from day one, I thought it would be a teacher. Um, so, yes, and I'm still a teacher. Right. If right. you say, you know, other than, you know, my first thing was wife, my second thing would be teacher. Right. Yes, to this day. How about day. you, Ed? 
Well, <clears throat> I was wanting to be a rock star. I had all kinds of wild <laughs> Well, there's still time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, disc jockey, you know, a lot of things that looked like fun. The airline pilot, <laughs> railroad conductor. <laughs> but, you know, I, I just enjoyed working. I've always enjoyed uh, the organizational stuff, you know. It's, uh, it's just been a journey. Were your parents, either of you, were your parents entrepreneurs? No. No, not at no. all. No, no. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I should say my mom was an educator, and she, just about the same time that we were doing the business and before she came and joined us, um, went off on her own as a consultant, but that's that's all. I mean, neither of them were... um, I know, it's interesting, even my mother worked for IBM briefly, you know, so in the workforce back in those days, and somewhat non-traditional, although my, I think... My mother was a secretary, so it was sure. a somewhat traditional role. Yes. But working outside the home was always something that she she pursued. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because in the in we're all the same age and so in the time that we grew up in the sixties and seventies, um, there has been a shift from people who were like your mom or like all of our parents, uh, who worked in big organizations and the shift now has been the shift to the movement towards entrepreneur organizations hasn't it yes well I have six um, children five siblings all sisters so six girls in my family and four out of the six have um, these are your sisters yes yeah exactly four of my um, out of six have their own businesses yeah. together with their husbands. Yes. Wow, there was something in the water there. I know. And so <laughs> something was there to lead us in that direction, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny. In my family, my brother and sister are also gig economy and uh, entrepreneurial in their own way. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So maybe it's generational. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's the times we're living in. Yeah, I mean, look, the um, technology has been able to level the playing field for a lot of us, right? So let, let you, even in your business, the... the well, you're up against big publishers, and at some point, I would argue that what had heretofore been their economies of scale mm-hmm. competing oh. against you oh, yeah. turned into almost diseconomies, didn't they? There's it, no question. It was de- desktop publishing. Right. We were disrupting back in you know the early 90s with desktop publishing and then being able to put out a quality product and short-run printing and it was specialized and mm-hmm. uh, get into distribution through you know even United Parcel Service. I mean. We never take that for granted, right? I could ship 10 boxes out of our little office and get them there reliably. You know? Just as reliably as Pearson or Houghton oh, sure. or whoever. Right. Yeah. So so um, people listening to this, uh, listen to the three, two of you talk about 35 years ago and today, and they think, well, this was just one straight line. It was just one straight line <laughs> of success. Is that true? Oh, gosh. I, well, Were there me, some bumps in the, bumps in the oh, line well, along high, the way? No question, but I mean, from a financial point of view of success, the way we ran things, we were fortunate to every year we were profitable, and most often every year we grew. So, and, and what do you, and so Ed, you really were a driving force <coughs> behind the business side of the business, whereas Barbara was the driving force behind the education uh, creativity in the business. When you think about the the business side of the business, was that a um, was that a friction that were you having to urge people that hey we've got to take care of this like a business? How did that work with you? <laughs> Within our organization, well, of course, early on it was Barbara and I, right? Right. But Barbara has all kinds of good business instincts. There's no doubt about that. And you know whether it's pricing, product, 
and at the end, initially, all, all we were doing is essentially, you know, selling and sharing Barbara's work. <clears throat> so, you know, when you have a high-quality uh, offering yeah. and, and a unique offering, then it's not difficult to go out. And then we found our marketplace, right? And I, I would like to say that there is no way we would get um, any kind of traction like we have without its business acumen. But right. it was it was his intuition about business, and, but particularly his um, ability to scale because of systems. <clears throat> and so I am not a systems-oriented person, but right from the beginning, everything that we did, Ed was you know, everything was about systems and making sure that it was going to be um, replicable because yes. it doesn't make sense to do something in one school district if we can't make sure we can do it in 10 others. Right. And so um, I you think know, that, I mean, that that was the biggest yeah. thing for our growth was Ed's really um, attention in detail to making sure we had systems in place. Yeah, I want to pile in on that, Ed, because mm-hmm. I think that I see, for example, many creative talented people but they're limited almost to an n a sample of one so the example would be uh, a personal or professional caregiver you know a dentist or a physician who has an n of one and it's not scalable right right and yet what barbara created you saw something in that that was scalable how 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 did that happen did did it come to you naturally or was it training or well i mean my background in business was working in supermarkets and then working in Store rooms and a supervisor of a, a stock room where people were assembling kidding. So right out, I was really into setting things up so that people could be efficient and accurate and right. kidding together electrical components for PC boards. And you know, it, it wasn't. I got exposed to ERP and MRP back in the day. You know, the ways to use computers to better uh, be better organize inventory and production control. That was my thing. And at the time that Barbara's, uh, you know, Learning Center was getting going, and then we said, hey, we, we can make this program for people with dyslexia who are older. I mean, it's, I don't know, it just sort of came together, color coding and using... I, I, I mean, what Ed's referring to is even actually the creation of Wilson. Yes. Um, so, you know, it's set up into a 12-step program, but it is... Well, that's another story. Extremely, yeah, that's another story of the 12-step program, but it's extremely organized and <clears throat> systematized. So even the way of instruction, even though, you know, I might be considered the author of it, it's um, possible for teachers to actually teach in the schools um, kids with dyslexia. It used to be only in private schools and private clinics. Right. But to get it in the hands of public school teachers to, to be able to know how to do it took real organization so that they could access this type of instruction. And so the whole program was organized in such a way that everything was color-coded, um, number-coded. You know, it was just so so put together so um well for teachers to access yes and that was just an example of ed's systematic mind but that kind of thing was brought into each part of the business so that right from the start of creating the program and then putting systems in place to to i remember the book i think we got you know self-publishing by dan pointer you know and uh, (laughs) reading that and you know just learning about copyright uh and things like that and how just do that basic sort of thing and really just going into the uh, essentially the printing business and, and having the trust. You know, there are people along the way who are mentors, right? So back uh, 
Tim Meehan, I'll never forget him as a mentor when I was in semiconductor test equipment manufacturing, and, uh, and, and Ann Russell at Reservoir Printing. There were people who step up and believe and, in us yeah. and give, you, give us a chance, you know, and uh, that's what they did. And I think, you know, being willing to always learn because we, we had to self-teach so much along mm-hmm. the way. We didn't know any of the things that were going to, you know, be needed. and. Right. You know, Ed would be uh, self-taught or turning to mentors or just connecting with people that loved what we were trying to do right. and wanted to help us. You have to take the leap and start hiring people. God bless Rob and Carlo, the first one we hired. And then in our learning center, we wound up with, I don't know, probably 20 people ultimately that we were paying. And that was an interesting model in the learning center, too. While they were learning to teach the system, they'd do some work for without getting paid, but soon, as soon as they were certified, they'd get paid. And I was writing checks, you know, and doing the payroll internally. But all the systems that came along, you know, that make life easy, automatic, you know, payroll businesses, that sort of thing. So, you know, Yeah, and so I, if, I, if I were giving people advice, even when you're, you're growing at a speed that seems overwhelming, to take the time to stop and put systems mm. into place because mm. sometimes you don't feel like you can do that because right. you're, you're going too fast and yeah. you just have to do the next thing. Yeah. But if you don't do that, then it'll fall apart. And did you have appreciation, Barbara, for that right from the beginning? Yes. <laughs> it's that a, wasn't it, a point of like friction no, between you? No, Barbara's... <sighs> Ed's lifelong mission is to get me organized, and I don't think he's going to accomplish it, but I appreciate it. But you're willing. Oh, my God, I appreciate it, yes. Well, that's really interesting because, you know, in some cases, um, creative entrepreneur side might resist the systemization and the scaling. Mm. There's a lot of give and take there, you know, um, and that's okay. You know, but we see the benefits of systems. We use reflex Plus, by Borland, this little uh, database oh, yeah, yeah. program to yeah. just make a very basic invoicing and inventory system. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you set that up before you can get into like a NYOB. And how many entrepreneurs have benefited from the Macintosh computer? So that was at the core of our startup. Oh, good timing. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And we actually got a really Adobe good deal on one of the rank. first ones because we were teaching. Um, somebody who worked for them, yes, a, student's a student's father, worked and got us a great deal. Otherwise, we probably couldn't have gotten that computer. Yes. We always talk about leasing that Apple printer for seven years, a laser printer. You know, that was a, one of our few debt moments. <laughs> so, are there times in the journey that you look back on that you think? oh, wow, we really stubbed our toe there, and by stubbing our toe, it caused us a lot of learning. Is there any of those that you would be willing to share? Gosh. Well, I can always, you know, it would always be an expensive and embarrassing mistake if we had a misprint or a a typo or, God forbid, a spelling error, and we're the reading and spelling experts. So we avoided that being a big problem by using short-run printing. So if there was a mistake, you know, there were not that many books to have to discard. How about when you were building the organization? Was that always a smooth? Uh, no. No. Yeah. So um, one of the things that we tried, you know, for many iterations, I would say, is to hire um, somebody that would possibly be um, – able to move into a CEO level Mm -hmm. and um, you know as the company got bigger and we 
um, hired some folks on our leadership team. We've had phenomenal people on our leadership team um, throughout the years. But we hired some people at executive levels um, that we did have to let go. And, you know, sometimes it was painful because we invested two, three years trying to make something work, and we would have to make the decision to let them go. And so we let quite a few people. I mean, we probably let, hmm, I don't know, 15 people go over the years. Um, from your leadership team? From, uh, yes. Yeah, some and levels I wouldn't, of management. Some levels of management. <clears throat> yeah, so yeah. management level up. Yeah. And, you know, so that's painful, and it's always difficult. And then in some situations, you know, it was, you know, hurting the organization because we probably – um, tried to make it work longer than we should have, and so that was a big learning um, curve that we, you know, understood over time. Don't let it go so long. If you see this isn't working, then you know, yeah. unfortunately, you have to move on. So it's 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 this is a an area that would be of great interest to anyone listening to this podcast because they're all bus- not all but many of them are business owners. And we know at Bigelow through some sort of like unscientific but polling that business owners say that they get the hiring decision right for their senior people about a third of the time, meaning they they typically have to go through two people before they get to the right one. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to guess, I'm generalizing, that many of us, most of us, um, would criti- self-criticize ourselves for holding on to people too long. Because mm-hmm. we were trying to give them yes. a chance, and you just said, "Yeah, but we, in, with the benefit of perfect hindsight, we actually should have moved those people along more quickly." Mm-hmm. Can you say more about that? Well, I guess what I would say about that is, you know, when we start seeing them bringing down other people in the organization. Um, or creating um, our culture is so important to us and you know it's been you know growing from you know five people to 250 or more people wanting to keep the culture being a collaborative really um, respectful respectful you know basically um, you know a, a team approach because everybody has to be on deck to, to really make things happen and especially dur- during intense periods of the year so um, it's really important that we keep that collaborative spirit and so when we see somebody who is really working more individually or trying to get people on their team and you know set their team up is you know more important than another team um, that's destructive and so we've had a couple of different situations where the executives that we've hired just really work very differently than the Wilson way mm-hmm. and um, once we see that it's it's hurting the organization you have to move more quickly and I think we do that now um, no. and it's hard to to <clears throat> hire that um, you, you can't really. Uh, it's hard to interview that. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to interview yeah. that. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they can have all the skills, all the right answers, and and even good references. Yeah. And then when they get in the organization, it's not a match. I think what's what's so satisfying having re- retained the culture for thirty years now, when folks are interviewing, and we have really professional HR, um, you know, management. I just know that in being exposed to our culture up front, and some people opt out 
are, are in, learn enough about what's going to really be expected of them in our organization that they don't they decide not to take the job and we would much prefer that you know so that I know a lot of the great companies have figured that out that you've got to set the expectation down as clearly as possible uh, up front <coughs> and, and communicate that and much better to not hire obviously we so we're much more careful about about that and you know I think the other thing we've learned is that we can it's always beneficial to give people as much of a chance to convert, to adapt to working at Wilson and and many do you know we, <clears throat> we have a number of incredible success stories I'm, I'm always the optimist I will always feel badly about the times I've had to separate from someone but the um, you know there are so many wonderful success stories of people who've been with us 20 30 years people who've grown from Starting in the warehouse to uh, you know running the technology department. I'm an optimist too, Ed. But I think my reflection on this conversation would be sometimes when we give people a chance to try to fit in. I think sometimes we hire for credentials and we fire for culture or lack yeah. of culture. And so when we try to give people a chance to fit in. I actually feel great empathy for them because I see sometimes people in our friends' organizations or in ours' organization where I can see this is not a matter of fault or blame. These are great people. They have great intentions. They have good skills. It just could be that they're not a good fit for the culture. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I feel like we're actually not doing them a favor that we actually could say, well, you know, if you'd be more comfortable, and our, our culture here is very radically transparent, it's very, very candid, yes. it's yes. very open, truthful, yes. and collaborative. And so, like, if we, we've had some people here who are great people who actually I still regret not them not being here in some ways, but I had a person say to me, I don't want a collaborative culture. I like keeping my own stuff to me. And I thought, that's not going to work here. Right. So sometimes I feel like we, at least we, I would criticize ourselves for hiring for credentials and then having to make the decision about culture later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's always exciting um, hiring people in their first job or early on in their careers because their first cultural work experience can yeah. be us. And yeah. that's a chance to not have to unlearn. Some yeah, that's great. Very often it works out. Mm -hmm. So can you say another word or two about, so not just your senior management team, but you hired, you tried to hire some people who would be leaders and in, in a way to be succeed you, Barbara, as, a, as the CEO? Yeah, and, and I don't think we ever hired um, specifically for that. It was just that. With the hope. Yeah, with the hope. I mean, <laughs> no, I, I, I think that... Um, Right, I don't know that it's realistic to think that anyone's going to walk in and essentially um, fill Barbara's role, per right. se. It's going to have to be different. Right. And actually it will be. Yes. You know, I, I, I guess I misspoke in saying that we hired people to, you know, with the hope to be CEO, um, because I, I don't think that we ever did that. We, what we did is want to surround ourselves with a strong leadership team, and I think we did that. Yes. And we did that well, and, and we had to let some people go. But, you know, the leadership team is very strong around us. But as we got to the point where we just keep growing, we realize we need somebody who is um, a CEO. And we realize that, you know, I think that we're not confident in our ability to hire a CEO because we don't want to hire somebody and have that same experience that we had with other leadership right. um, uh, failures so that you know we really appreciate um, 
teaming up with Alpine, our um, our new investors, our new investors to bring their skill in finding somebody, and we're we're thrilled with the person that they have found for us. I think that the three of us, just if we're locked in this little room together, the three of us probably shared a slight amount of professional skepticism that someone from outside the industry would be able to find some a person such as you found who seems to be on uh, all appearances to be a, just a terrific fit for you. Mm-hmm. Can you reflect on that a little bit? How do you think? Are you surprised? Um, uh, I, we were hopeful, but <laughs> <laughs> we were like, oh, this is going to be interesting. And so, yes, I think that we had a lot of trust in Alpine's um, belief in people and culture match with us. And so we had hope that they understood what was key for us to go forward. But what we were probably wondering about is, do we need somebody who has an education background? Yes. And we're not, that's not the case. But I think that at this point in time for our company, it's more important to have somebody who knows how to help a growing business that's rapidly growing and Mm -hmm. have the um, ability and experience and skill set to do that and match our culture at the same time. And I think Alpine hit that, you know, right on the nail head. Great. Yeah. Great. Mm-hmm. So the two of you worked hand in hand for all these years, and um, it wasn't the, the Barbara and Ed show by any means. You have a significant, experienced, successful senior leadership team. But nonetheless, I'm sure that when the two of you drive home at night, there's many times the con- the topic is business, the business. Sometimes you drive back to the office in the morning, sometimes the topic is business. You spend a lot of time together. I'm talking about role clarity here. How do you think, how did you succeed when the two of you were together that other people in your organization clearly understood and were committed to their own roles how did the, how did you make that work well I it's funny you said the Barbara and Ed show there was a time when Bar- Barbara <laughs> and I would go out and literally be the uh, presenters for the for the product in our company and I think for many uh, do you miss those days not so much but, <laughs> but they were great times really they were formative you know really meeting clients and talking to teachers and so that that has been part of our history and so you know, Barbara and I do have clear roles, even in that uh, respect. Barbara's an expert in, in, in education, and, you know, my job is more to talk about the publishing side. And I think as the business grew, it became easier because at first it was overlap for absolutely everything and right. every decision, every every aspect of the business um, constantly. And so, you know, when we were much smaller that was the case it was us doing it all right? yes and then even when you had a team of 20 it was still that way um, but as business grew bigger it became easier to you know have Ed be operations and and me be education and that definitely helped but it doesn't change the fact that you still talk a, a lot oh, about it yeah. and because we didn't have children mm-hmm. um, there you know we really had to set some um, Our dogs have overheard some really interesting, <laughs> some difficult conversations. Yes, because, our dogs have. You know, there's no, well, Barbara and I are incredibly strong partners and complement each other with different skill sets and different a different approach, really, to many topics. We've had to work through those um, 
many, many times, you know, and find some common ground. So uh, I would have to say that there's, there's no question that that's been at times challenging. But uh, And I wouldn't, I can't believe we would have put ourselves through it if it wasn't for helping people with literacy for life and mm -hmm. dyslexia, frankly. I, you know, because it has been a labor of love and <clears throat> with impact. And I think that what we learned, and this was a, a big learning, was to put parameters. Mm -hmm. And so we had to understand that if, you know, we really have to separate some time at home. And that's impossible because you're going to have those conversations come into your home. So that would still happen. But we really learned to say if one or the other said, you know, let's stop talking right now. Let's, you know, not do this. We'll wait for tomorrow and discuss it at work. Then we would let that go. And so we really learned how to do that, and that was key. Definitely. <laughs> so the two of you are, have up till now, are the owners of the business, and yet you have a supremely capable leadership team who I would say in many ways acted like they were owners of the business, mm -hmm. which I view as a huge positive. Mm -hmm. How did you, what did you do to foster that in them? Well, uh, we have, I guess we have a culture of inclusion and collaboration, so that really we are egalitarian in that in that way and sometimes it takes too long but yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but people there's a Me, lot of meaning you open the door to let people uh, weigh in on important decisions yes yeah. you, did, you didn't keep those to the two of you no. no what if the two of you didn't agree with the rest of the group well that's yeah, yeah. That more happens. often than not, it was probably be some in the group agreed with me, some in the group agreed with Ed, and Ed and I agree. We have to agree to talk about right. this tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. Exactly. But um, I think that it's probably true. I mean, there, I can't think of many decisions that were just done with Ed and I. It was usually a team of people, depending yeah. upon what the, you know, what it was about. So the leadership was always in the conversation and it was, you put it on the table. It wasn't something that was behind the closed door. So everybody feels ownership and part of it. And, you know, it, sometimes it would make us crazy because it would take too long or right. longer than you would want it to. Right. But I think in the end, it, it made a big difference for them to feel as much part of the have the ownership as much as us. No, I, I agree. I, on the operational side of the business, you know, it tends to be more straightforward. When you're talking about product design and, you know, product strategy, the marketing aspects, it can be a lot more um, subjective, I think, and that's okay. You know, we I, there, I remember a time when we really had to separate some of the creative and, and inspirational things from the operational side just so we could keep the operation going. So even in a physical space sense, we wouldn't let Barbara come in and say, "Okay, everybody, stop what you're doing. We're gonna we're gonna do this thing and, and, and call a bunch of people," which only happened once in a while. But we, we've I think we learned how to keep the making the donuts, you know, <laughs> go know, from sort of its own in, not insulated, but um, you know, routine, and let the make sure that the creative and pr product development side could could go off and do what they need to do. Did you feel like when you were striving to build the organization, and I get the mission-inspired uh, uh, organization, but did you feel like you were striving towards a destination? 
I mean, we, we say literacy for all, and, and to <laughs> me, that's still the destination. You know, the, the I could go off on, you know, the frustrations I still feel about the, you know, way that people look at <clears throat> teaching reading instruction, and it's still an aha moment that you need both, you know, a structured approach and, a, you know, an ELA program that does the right thing. And so the destination is still to get the, the world to see that there is a, 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 an effective way to teach anyone how to read. And I, I mean, <laughs> as someone who wanted to teach all their life, and then I go to school to be educated, to be a teacher, go out there and do not know how to teach the kids in front of me. I mean, that I almost left education because of that. And it's just a travesty that we have teachers graduating from colleges all across America who do not know how to teach kids how to read. And, and that's because that's not what's taught in college. They're, they're taught other things, but they're taught theory, they're taught, but they're not taught this is how you actually do it. And so really the, the end goal has always been to make teachers' lives, you know, what they always wanted it to be. Teachers yes. go into teaching not for the money, not right. for the summer vacations because they have to work during the summer. They go in to make a difference in kids' lives. And so we, as much as we are changing children's trajectory by teaching them how to read, I really think of it as really helping the teachers do what they went to school to do. And we need our teachers in America. So that's the, always the goal that we have is just really helping teachers do what they want to do, which is teach kids how to succeed. So if you were the uh, in charge, what would you do to change the teacher education system? There's a lot of people working toward this, which is to get teachers learning how to teach reading with the science of reading, which is what we know from research, how they need to learn to read. Um, but that's not done in a lot of universities. So part of what we're doing is partnering with universities um, because we are doing what we're doing in school districts because universities are not doing it. So we are now working to partner with universities. And I mentioned the Alliance organization. Other you know, people in the Alliance organizations are also reaching out and trying to partner with universities. Um, so... I, I think if I could blink, you yeah. know, it would be just really uh, the people who are teaching in colleges and universities need to know themselves how to do it. They don't. I think it's really insightful what you just said, and probably for most listeners will not understand until they just heard you. So many people talk about the desire for having more productive teachers, and as you put it, to get the teachers to be able to do what they wanted to do, which is to make a positive change in kids' lives exactly. anyway. But many people would maybe look at that as a symptom and say, well, let's try to fix the symptom. But you're really actually saying, get us take a step back and say, well, those teachers were actually never taught right. how to, to implement on exactly. that. And so it really goes to the post-secondary education yes. system. Yes, exactly. And so the success of our business is only a result of the failure of the universities, honestly, because um, that's what we do. Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 can, oh. <laughs> I, can, I can agree with that to some degree. I, I, there's just this insane debate that continues, the idea that you either are more of a structured language, phonetic-based, you know, believer, or you believe more in a whole language, balanced literacy, 
something else type of thing. Kids will intuitively <coughs> learn how to read when they're ready. There's no scientific evidence to support that. But So the bottom line is you need both. And then you need time in the classroom and commitment to deliver it with a regular degree of fidelity. So that it's a difficult job uh, teaching kindergarten for a second, any, any grade. And if you get in there and watch what teachers have to you know, undertake every day with all the other things going on around them, ranging from, you know, God forbid, danger to hunger to tired students. You know, there's all those factors. So the least we can do is give them a reliable uh, approach to get the foundations of teaching reading, everybody, because nobody is held back by that. All students benefit from understanding the way that letters and syllables work for spelling and decoding down the road. And, but that does not come to the exclusion of also doing all the other great parts of English language arts that carry on from there. So to the extent that commercial um, you know, entities such as ourselves are involved, it's critical for not only the teachers, but all the administrators and the people who make the decisions and the buying decisions to understand what they're doing. You know, the, Barbara. You've turned Ed into an educator. Oh, he, he is. I, I mean, wow. he's lived this and done this and passionate about it. Right. Um, I can see that. It's awesome. For 35 yeah. years. It's yeah. a huge public policy challenge that we face. and uh, every, Everyone should be um, behind this. <clears throat> yeah. So did you have a good experience, do you remember, as a kid in learning how to read? Uh, yes, I did. I went to Catholic school, and yeah, yeah they... You definitely did a good job teaching me. How about you, Ed? Same here. I'm. I mean, I happen to be language uh, intuitive. I've come to learn, and so language comes intuitively to me. And they put SRA, those nice little oh, yeah. uh, color coded yeah. reading, and I boom, 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 went right up to the top. So I forgot about those. Remember those? Yes. <laughs> l- l- lucky me. But there's all kinds of brilliant, talented people who, uh, for whom that is not going to be the best way for them to learn. What did school not succeed in with? You, Ed. What did school kill in you? Oh, boy. Well, I, again, was fortunate to be, um, I think, able to deal with most of the things we went in school. But I can tell you the story of the senior high school uh, situation I had. And it's a senior where I was, I forget what it was. I was a, not a, a happy child at school. So I was misbehaving and got ejected. And out of the, I remember what now, I was ejected out of the, honors degree the honors program whatever you call it the high thing and it was tough I mean I remember a teacher trying to force me to give a definition for a word that he had said is what it is when most English words have at least three definitions so I was getting pushed into a box that uh, didn't work out so well I can distinctly (laughs) remember um as a young child, I'm not sure if this would be first grade, but I, I think it probably is, of feeling like I see what's happening here, that these adults want me to go to this classroom and sit here and be lectured to by this person who's trying to teach me what she knows. And I did not like it. I did not like like that they took away my freedom. Or, I mean, well, that would be Ed. <laughs> I was that. a good. You Catholic. can resonate with. That. I was a good Catholic girl, and they, that would be Ed. My mother threatened Catholic school many times, but I can tell you there were many great teachers who taught me a lot. Yeah. So, eighty-nine percent of my experience was, was you know, positive. I think that it's interesting that I'm guessing a lot of um, entrepreneurs and possibly people listening to this are thinking, oh my gosh, I have trouble with spelling and this and that because a great number of them are likely 
um, have dyslexic tendencies because dyslexic individuals are wonderful right hemisphere thinkers and and great thinkers and problem solvers mm-hmm. and um, that's why we love working with them but my guess is that you know a very high number would be great entrepreneurs oh i would see you and raise you on that barbara that yes i think it's uh you've heard me say maybe just a couple of weeks ago in a group of entrepreneurs that we say with great Affection. These are our ADD dyslexic misfits yes. who, when they're not in a room full of entrepreneurs, they're the weird, stupid kids in the room. Yes. And then they, we find that they're actually the most creative, productive, Correct. successful people <clears throat> who are entrepreneurs. And exactly. like, if you need an example, you saw uh, two weeks ago uh, Elon Musk mm-hmm. introduced himself on Saturday Night Live as probably the only Saturday Night Live host who's been diagnosed with Asperger's. Mm-hmm. And I just wow. think that... And I'm sure he's not, by the way, the only host who has Asperger's on Saturday Night Live. But I just think there's a, there's a there's a coming of age where you say, oh yeah, here's this obviously brilliant, obviously successful uh, Uber entrepreneur, who you know he's out there somewhere. And actually, um, it occurs to me when, during this conversation that, geez, I hope we don't solve all of that too fast no no <laughs> so so that's the thing we don't want to change that yes we no. don't want them to be destroyed in the meantime by teachers who don't get their smartness right and, you know you don't allow them to access print right because you know they learn differently and so yes absolutely no question um, there's just so many brilliant minds out there who have had really bad experiences in school and didn't learn to access print easily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's no longer a gate to learning anyway, which is good. I think everyone should have access to print because it's all it's a great way to get information at your own pace and have time to reflect. You mean print print or e-print? I, I mean print in general. It could be e-print, but okay. just taking yeah, in, the in general. Yes. Yeah. Okay. yes, to yeah. be able to do it. To audio in, yes. Instead of audio. Yes. Right. We don't know what the impact on the brain is uh, long term for all that. But I, I, you know, I, the list of successful entrepreneurs who were oh. identified as a slice yeah. goes on forever. So, so you're entering a new chapter personally and professionally. Are there some things um, that you're currently contemplating that you're looking forward to with anticipation? Well, practicing what we preach by having some more time to read some things that are interesting to me. That'd be good. Not so much in the field or in the business, but yep. you know, that's one. You know, uh, I we have not yet had the opportunity to really right. step back and think about that. So it's hard for us to, to answer that. We love to travel. Um, mm. We both just enjoy learning about other cultures, going on hiking trips and things like that. And I am going to also suggest to people that they be sure that they do that along the way. I think we, you know, did take time to do that, which was really important for us. Um, you did take time we to did. do that. We yeah. did. Can so, you say a little more about that? Uh, I love our story of when we first got married and went to Asia <laughs> on a shoestring for eight weeks. And one takeaway from that on $20 a day. <laughs> yeah, and another takeaway, Ed, would be the listeners to this would ask themselves, did I just hear him right? They got married, they they were going to start a business, and they went to Asia for eight weeks. How did they do that? Yeah. Well, we weren't going to start a business yeah. at that point. So yeah. we got married, and, and Ed um, was able to get uh, time off from his company, and I had 
my job as a teacher, so I had eight weeks off, and we we just went backpacking in in Malaysia, in Thailand, and Singapore, and we stopped at Greece on the way and Germany on the way back, and um, yeah, we we actually spent every bit of penny that we had it, and I think it was yeah. like twenty dollars a day or yeah. some crazy number. That's all we had to yeah. live on. But you know, one of the things we learned was With how traveling to make decisions checks. together, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so every and that was. Which, you know, we have $3 here. What are we going to buy to eat? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think also you're my heroes in that people who follow this podcast or follow our blogs know one of the blog posts I have is called Work-Life Balance Schmalance. And the reason is that I hear entrepreneurs and their families talk about work-life balance. And I really feel like even the structure of that work-life balance, that you just made, set up a dichotomy mm. between work and life. And the two of you actually figured out how to do, I would say, work-life integration. Well, you know what? I think what we probably did wrong sometimes was that we would, you know, not have a balance for a long time and then have to get a crash vacation. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry about the crash on the table there. But, yes, we so we would not get a balance and then we would have to go away for yeah. 15 days yeah. and go hiking somewhere or you know get so, replenished replenished yeah. so so we would try to do that maybe twice a year um and so we were good at that but probably not so good at the balance in between yeah mm. Do you plan to continue that? No, we plan to do a lot more balance all, <laughs> way all more year. Balance. Way, way more, more balance. balance, right, exactly. <laughs> so I think, as Ed said, I mean, I cannot wait to get up and be able to read um, and be able to, you know, have wonderful trips together and travel. Um, but we also know that we are so committed to education and what we know needs to happen in education in America that we'll, we'll – continue to stay involved both with our company Wilson in some way but you know definitely want to impact the world um, in for good and you know it drives us I, I, I can't imagine not having something like that um, driving my my days so so if you think of of life as a um, school of full of great teachers and lots of information then what do you think life is asking you to learn right now Is that a heavy question? Yeah. What do you want? <laughs> well, I would go with, I mean, for me, patience uh, is always uh, something to learn. And I tend, I can be impatient and be trying to be quick, you know, trying to get a lot done every day, jumping through this or that. I, I love the idea of taking bigger subjects, taking them apart, getting some time to really, you know, think through a, a question even like this one, and, and then come up with a really thoughtful answer that you might write down, you might develop into a whole new direction. You might have as a theme for a conversation with other people thinking about that theme. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good answer. I think that um, what I am wanting to, to do at this point in my life, so what's life going to teach me right now, yeah. it's going to teach me how to take a breath and mm -hmm. really give myself permission to take time to go thoughtfully through um, my weeks and months as opposed to just plowing through. 
And, and I'm already starting to feel that way, even though it hasn't slowed down at all, because I feel the hope of it. And so um, I, I'm feeling like I can give myself permission to take that extra walk in the afternoon. And I'm so excited. No, there's no doubt. I mean, this is a huge turning point for us. We've used metaphors like, you know, having to hold the steering wheel over to the, the left and not get completely, a, you know, crazy on the right side or, you know, having to just hang on. <clears throat> we, we've worked extremely hard every week for many, many, many years. Yes. So for us, it's a huge transition. And, I'm, well, you know, when you love someone as I love Barbara lucky enough to be married to someone like her <clears throat> so committed you know it's a mission we share but first and foremost it's you know our health our health together our peace of mind you know and our marriage that comes first so we've one thing we always have done is put our marriage first and that has been oftentimes the catalyst for the right decision to not do this or to say occasionally say no to that or yeah, I, I, I've learned to say no a little bit better, <laughs> but it's it's a hard thing to do. Yeah, yes. wow, that's mm-hmm. that's really insightful, Ed. Mm-hmm. So, Barbara, um, a question I want to ask you is um, about a misconception that people might have about you, people who even know you well, and I don't. It doesn't have to come from being a woman-led business, a woman partially owned business, but it could be if you want to. Is there a misconception that people have about you that you feel is a misunderstanding? Mm. I guess it would be, if anything, that I have it all together. <laughs> because I don't. <laughs> so I like That's to great. portray that image. Yeah. So, That's yeah, great. I guess that would be it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, there's a sign in our office up and they say, we may not have it all together. but Together we, we have it all. Together we have right. it all. Oh, that's exactly. great. Which is yeah. interesting. Yeah. Great. You know, I think sometimes people probably think that Barbara being willing and able to speak publicly on the subject so often is more of an extrovert. But really, she's more of a, a shy person who's mm-hmm. uh, overcome that in order to get the job done. Yeah, that's probably that's probably the other one that mm-hmm. you know it's not easy for me to stand up on the podium, and mm-hmm. you know um, I think people would be surprised by that. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would say that uh, many of our entrepreneur friends and clients, that's probably true of that. If you tested them. They test as introverts, but they can get it together when they have to, mm-hmm. to get their social skills polished up, to be an extrovert when they're called on to do so, mm-hmm. at least temporarily. Yes. Mm-hmm. I know yes. for me that if I have to do that, though, it takes a lot out of me. Yes. It means that I have to go get replenished and mm-hmm. do that thing. Yes. Well, I want to thank you both for talking so candidly with me today, mm-hmm. Positive Enterprise Value. I know everyone who hears this is going to get a big positive impact in their lives so thank you oh thank you for having us thank you for all your help it's been a tremendous tremendous journey can't wait to see what we do next i know (laughs) that's right you got my mind spinning (laughs) i hope you enjoyed this interview as much as i did We believe that entrepreneur owner managers are the most powerful pro-social and pro-economic force on the planet. And it's for that reason that we dedicate our firm Bigelow to working exclusively with them. At Positive Enterprise Value, we freely share our learning so that you can absorb from the experiences of other private business owners with skin in the game, just like you. 
Bigelow is widely regarded as the M&A advisor that deals exclusively with high-performing entrepreneur owner-managers. Our scrappy independent boutique firm only offers one service, that is to help build and someday capture enterprise value. You can find all of the episodes on this podcast on Bigelow's website, which is bigelowllc.com.